I'm Doug Shipman, and I'm in the apartment with Pale. Hey, Pale. Meet me at the apartment. <laughs> Yo, we back. It's your boy Pale. Are we in the apartment with Pale? Meet me in the apartments. I love my city. I'm a land of the deaf, man. I, I'm just, you know, I say this all the time, and I know y'all probably hearing y'all know I'm going to say it every time besides the intro. I'm a land of the deaf. You know what I'm saying? I love other cities. I love my people. I love the culture. And I love my city. You know what I'm saying? It's just something special about Atlanta. It's just something special about the people. It's something special about the energy. It's some it's, it's some special it's just something special about this that I can't I can't put my finger on. And when I say special, I mean in its whole totality. I mean from I mean from the artists to the to the athletes to the to the uh, activists to the politicians to the to the city itself. You see what I'm saying? To the city itself. Like we done bred some some of the greats, some of the most greats. You know what I'm saying? And um I, I think that's special. Um one of the most special things I most one of the most special things about this city is is to me is as I get older, I really appreciate the people who really try to um do everything they can to help this city. To um take their voice and everything they've been through and all their testimonies and to be a living walking testimony for people to see and to be able to take these experiences and help out help 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 this city. You know what I'm saying? And this year we got elections coming up and, and this stuff a lot of stuff is going on, you know, people's reaching out, everybody wants to say what they want to do and how they feel they wanna happen and what they wanna do. And you know, um I'm just glad to have a platform where I can be able to share some of these experiences with my supporters. With everybody who listening to enlighten y'all on what's going on, um, on what's going on in our city, and how the people who run um, for office how it helps you. The notion of it, it is like when you grow up in the black community, you don't believe in voting and stuff. You just like it ain't got nothing to do with me. It don't help me. It don't help me. Local politics are the most important politics there there is. If you don't believe in the, the presidential race and all that, that, that's cool. You know what I'm saying? But I encourage you to get heavily involved with local politicians and the politics because these these the people in Atlanta City Council um, or with, with council, wherever you at, they write the laws. That's who figure out who do the laws. You see what I'm saying? Um, then you um the um your, the police and, and um your police chiefs and your mayors and your DAs get involved in this. You know what I'm saying? And the reason I'm saying this, and I know it's a notion of like, they ain't going to help me, they're against me, they're against me. The system is against you. You know what I'm saying? But the best thing to for you to use your advantage is to know your op, as we say in the streets. Know the people who are pressing against you. Once you know what they do, then you know what you need to do co to combat that. But if you never know, then you never know what you can do on your side, and you go, it's going to be a remaining cycle. Over and over again. So I'm here just to bring attention to y'all. And my next guest I have here is running for um, city council, the head seat. And um, I just want we want to hear what he got to say. Let him talk to the people. Let the welcome Doug shit watch to the show. Thanks for that. It is great to be here. Okay. I appreciate you. Uh, I appreciate you caring about local politics. I mean, you're exactly right when you think about what sidewalks look like, whether there are trees in the neighborhood, whether there are parks whether those kinds of investments are made, whether it's street floods or not, those are all things that happen at the city level. It's not federal money. It's not state money. Those are local decisions. And so I think 
for those of us who love the city and, and you and I know we share a love of the history of the city, Definitely, you know, the, that where this city has come from and it's sort of unique civil rights legacy, it's unique business legacy, it's unique arts legacy. You know, the decisions we make today decide whether or not those legacies find the future or whether they just die. And so I'm excited to be here and talk a little bit about, you know, why I want to serve as city council president. Man, you're in the pot, man. So I want to tell you this. You're the first white guy to come to the pot. Oh, how about that? We'll get some more class for that. We'll get some more class for that. We'll get some more class for that. We'll get some more class for that, man. I did not know that. Yeah, definitely, man. Nah, definitely, man. Diversity, man. In the pot, man. Listen. I feel a burden. I feel an extra burden to be good then. So, and I, and I, I like, I like, I like to tell a lot of people this. A lot of people think that with this platform that you have to be an artist or you have to be an athlete or you have to be somebody big or you have to be somebody that everybody know. That's not always the case. I made this platform to have dialogue, open dialogue for people who want to find knowledge, can have a place to find knowledge that directly helps them. I feel like when it comes to everything that's going on in the world, everything that's going on in the city, even all the laws and the things that help people in my community, none of it is structured to directly affect street people. You know what I'm saying? People who, and my mom was on dope. I don't really got no daddy. Only thing I know is my mom ain't got no food. I got brothers and sisters. I know how to go hustle, make some money, go feed my family. That becomes what they do the rest of their life. That's all they know. They catch a few charges. Uh, the DA try to send them down the road. Now they don't like the system. They don't like the DA. They don't like the police. And usually in, in, our, in, our, in, in the projects, what happens is, when that happens is, it's like, well, I don't know, nothing politics. I don't want to have nothing to do with it because everything is against me. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And they don't have the knowledge of people to tell them or people who to come from where they come from to show them. So I just want you to explain real quick exactly what Atlanta City Council does and how does it affect people of poverty and project people and people from my culture. So the city itself has a $700 million budget. It also controls a billion-dollar budget at the airport. So you got $1.7 billion flowing through this city and all the jobs attached to it and all of where that's going to go. The city council basically is your board of directors. So it's basically the folks that write the law or that decide where that budget's going to go. Your mayor is your CEO of your company, right? They're the one that actually says, okay, you want to spend it on this project? Then I'm going to make sure it gets spent on that project. So how does it actually matter? So it matters this way. There was a study done of where parks are in this city and who can walk to a park in 10 minutes. And if you take that map and you look at a map of where the poverty areas are in our city, you will find that the parks are not in the areas with poverty. Not a surprise, but a travesty, right? Because we have not taken the dollars on parks and we have not put them in the areas that don't have parks. We've just basically said, okay, let's put them where we already had parks, which basically were in the richer areas. If you look at the parts of the city that are hottest on a daily basis, and why is a part of the city hot? Because it doesn't have trees. It's got a lot of concrete. It basically doesn't have kind of all of those ways in which a city gets cooler. You will find they are also in the areas where there's the most poverty. So the city council, in essence, if you think about that money is going to flow someplace. The city council decides where it's going to flow. And is it going to flow to areas where it's not been spent and it's not been invested in the past? Or is it going to flow to areas that it has been spent in the past. That's what city council does. Here's another thing city council does. City council decides how police are going to behave. For instance, there's a big conversation about if I'm a police officer and I see another police officer do something they shouldn't, do I have to basically 
rat them out? Do I basically have to report them? Right now, the law says that you don't. Basically, Officer A doesn't have to say anything about Officer B. City Council could change that. City Council could basically say, no, our officers have to, if they see something, say something. So it is not only where the money goes, but it's also how all of those people who work for the city, police, fire, city staffers, where and how they actually behave. And here's the third thing. Does the trash get picked up? If tires are dumped, do they get picked up? Do things get, do, do public properties, does the grass get cut? How the city looks and feels, every part of it, depends on how city council decides to spend the money and how the mayor decides to actually run the city. And so it makes a big difference when you walk out of your door, no matter where you live, and you look around and you say, okay, is this a city that I feel good about today? Or is this a city I don't feel good about today? A lot of that comes down to what city council decides. Okay, so in the sense of what you said, if somebody was, let's just say from Bankhead, yep. and they want to get into it, and they want to get, okay, it's Atlanta City Council, let me find out who I want to um, support. Their focus needs to be, first they need to find out the things that they want in their community. Right. Um, I want, we want the parks around here. Because the reason I say this, it's a lot of parks in the, around these areas that are tore down. That the field, don't nobody do nothing with the fields. They got gym, it's nothing. And it's a lot of it's a lot of new youth recreation programs. They got football, basketball, baseball. They don't have a lot of places to go, right? Because most of the, the fields are already owned by the city. Yep. You see what I'm saying? So people like that need to figure out who's okay. Doug, are you with this? Getting these parts together? Are you with putting this together? We want this in our we want this in our community. We want this. And you're the person that says, okay, we can do this, we can do this, we can do this. We can talk about doing this, we can work on doing this. So that's how they can come to you and be like, this is what we're gonna do. And then the, the person that fits more to what you want to do, nine times out of ten, that'll be the person that, that you want to vote that's for. That's exactly right? right. And it can be it can be very simple stuff that's big. Believe it or not, I played hoops in college. That is a shock, given that I what am college only you went five to? nine. I went to Emory here in Atlanta. I played, okay. I played point guard. I really wanted to be a shooting guard, but that's another story. Mm-hmm. You know, if you go to an outdoor court and it doesn't have nets, it is hard to play hoops yes. as opposed to if it has nets, yes. right? I mean, it's a whole different game, whole different level of fun. So that is a good example of do we have budget for nets? Do we have somebody who's checking on the nets all the time? Is that actually going to be a priority? It's that can be a very important, it may seem small, but it may be the difference between everybody going down and playing every day and people saying, ah, that court's no good. I'm not going to play there anymore. So yes, you should as a person say, these are the things that are important to me and who is going to not only talk about those things, but who is actually going to make sure that we're spending money and spending time and focusing on those things. So they happen. I mean, the pools, another good example, right? Mm -hmm. We got a lot of pools. Are the pools open? Do the pools look good? Do we have enough lifeguards for the pools? Is the snack bar open? I mean, that makes a huge difference as to whether or not you're actually going to go down and you're going to participate in, you know, in that pool or not. And so I think that those are the kinds of things that sometimes people say, oh, I don't know about all the big stuff and I don't know how it all works. It doesn't have to. It's really about what is happening in your neighborhood, in, on your street, and what do you want to see that would make your life better. That's, that's, that's dope. On this show, what I like to do, I like to get to know the person behind the figure. Yeah. And um, let's go all the way back to where you're from, um, how you grew up, and some of your influences as you came up. So I grew up in rural Arkansas, a town of 1,200, where my parents still live. 
town of 1200. 1200. I, I call it North Georgia without Atlanta. It's just basically rural in all you can go in any direction 150 miles and not run into a town of more than 10,000. I mean it is rural. Yeah. My dad was a preacher. Uh, my mom was a school teacher. I grew up in a Pentecostal church. Uh, and um, I basically was influenced by the fact that I knew I wanted to leave. And I, knew very, and, I, and I knew very early that my town was not the world because what I saw through my TV and what I heard through my speakers was not what was around me, right? So I thought, well, this world's a lot bigger. So I ended up coming to Emory. And um, the reason I came to Emory is I got a scholarship, but I also wanted to come to Atlanta. There was just something about Atlanta that was kind of drawing me. And two things happened very first few weeks I was here. One, Sweet Auburn Fest was happening. Definitely. James Brown had a free concert under the connector. Mm. 10,000 people came out. Almost all of them didn't look like me, mm-hmm. right? I was my, my college roommate, who was also white. Two of us went down there. 10,000 people under the connector, James Brown doing his thing. And I thought, this is heaven. Holy smoke. This is amazing because I had listened to James Brown growing up. Yeah. And the second thing that happens was I started going to services at Old Ebenezer. And the first time I went to church there, we opened up the hymnal, you know, the hymnals, you know, the numbers are up on the board. Yeah. You open up the yeah. hymnal, I'm flipping through, I'm saying, well, what's 492, what's 186? They're all songs I knew from my Pentecostal church. Mm-hmm. Knew all the songs. Of course, we sang them a little slower. We didn't sing them quite as good <laughs> as they did at Ebenezer. But it was this really interesting moment where my world was both super connected, this felt very familiar, but it also was completely different, right? It was bigger. It was more diverse. It was a completely different kind of experience. And so I threw myself into Atlanta history, and I ended up really kind of immersing myself in history. I did some work at the King Center. I did some work with Robert Franklin before he was Morehouse president, and I really tried to understand what this city was about. Uh, And basically, it transformed me. And it also, you know, like a lot of people who come here, I wasn't from here, but I felt as if the city was embracing me in a certain way and that that legacy was something that, you know, that I wanted to try to, to promote. No, that's, that's, pretty, that's, pretty, that's pretty dope. Give me, give me your first Atlanta experience where you was just like, besides the, the Auburn yeah. Fest, that you were just like, oh, this is Atlanta. So I remember one night at Emory, Betty Shabazz, Malcolm X's mm-hmm. uh, widow, and Coretta Scott King had a dual speaking appearance. And by that time, I was studying both Dr. King and, and, and his sermons and Malcolm X and all of his speeches. And after the program, the two of them were sitting there, just sitting there talking to each other. And I walked up and started talking to them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. How, would, how was you feeling? I, visually, I want to see. <laughs> they sit right there talking. So they're sitting in two chairs. Nobody's uh-huh. bothering them. And they, you know, they're very properly dressed. And, you know, they're very, you know, they're very stately. Because at this, you know, they're, they're older women at this point in their lives. And there's me, 20-year-old, pimple-faced, white kid walking up. And I was just in awe of them. I mean, these were icons. Mm-hmm who I, you know, who had come, and all of a sudden they had come out of the book, and they were then, you know, in, in person. And I was kind of shaken, and I didn't know quite what to say, but I just said, look, you, you both are very important to me. You know, you, you all inspire me, and I just appreciate you being here and, and sharing yourself. And that was an Atlanta moment because so many legends walk around here. Mm-hmm. So many legends live down the street. Some of them we know. Some of them have passed. 
John, C.T. Vivian, Joseph Lowry. Some of them yeah. have it that we don't know, but they're legends. And in Atlanta, you, you, can, you can talk to them and you can see them and you can hear from them. And sometimes you can become friends with them. And to me, that's, and it's not only around civil rights, that's my world, but the same thing happens with friends who know athletes, friends who know artists. That's not the same in other cities. You don't get that in other cities. <laughs> yeah. Other cities, your icons are behind, they're behind glass. They're behind fences. They're, they're, not, they're not moving with people. Where that moment was just unbelievable to me. It was like angels had descended and I was touching them. How that's long did you get a chance to talk to them? Oh, I talked to them like three, three or four minutes. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's all I could, I could have it. I mean, I was just, you know, stumbling. Yeah. I didn't have anything profound to say. <laughs> and they were both very lovely. They were like, oh, thank you so much. And, you know, what are you studying? I mean, they were very gracious. But it really, you know, later on when I got a chance to meet a lot of other icons, it, it became a little bit more where I wasn't as awestruck. And I said, okay, in Atlanta, it's okay to have a conversation with your icons, which is just not always the way that it is. No, that, that was a, that was a great answer. Really, that was a really that was a really great answer. Really, <laughs> that was a really great uh, because you saying that it is. You can just be outside driving and stop by the corner store and just see a rapper just walk out of it. Yep, and you like, see a baby, see a baby. You look outside, you see a Lambo. You like, it's a baby. Like this is Atlanta, and it, no, that's so. That was a great. That was a great. That was definitely was a great answer. Okay, tell me this. How did you get into um, wanting to do politics? Was, was it always like that? Mm. Or did you something that you picked up along the way? So it's a little of both. So when I went to grad school, I went for a degree in theology. Mm-hmm. And I studied King and Malcolm and other religious uh, leaders who were into social movements. And then I also studied public policy. So I had a notion that maybe someday I worked on Capitol Hill for a while. I've worked on presidential campaign. But when I came back to Atlanta, I basically wasn't involved in any of that. And one day I got a call about a new civil rights museum from Mayor Shirley Franklin. And I knew a lot about civil rights. So I did a 10-week project to see if it was possible. And then the King papers were acquired and the idea got rolling. And so I spent 10 years building the Center for Civil and Human Rights downtown and I got a really keen sense of Atlanta. Three years ago, I started to feel the city pulling itself apart in some really fundamental ways. People not investing in making sure everybody was involved. People not making sure they're across generations. We were having people who were at the tables. I started to see that. It reminded me of something Andy Young once said to me. He, Andy Young said to me, Atlanta was never the city too busy to hate. That was ridiculous. There's plenty of hate in Atlanta, like there was everywhere. He said, but Atlanta built relationships before a crisis happened. He said, in Atlanta, we all knew each other. White political establishment, white businessmen, HBCU presidents, civil rights activists, the street committee, everybody knew each other. And so when a crisis happened, we sat down, we started negotiating, we rolled up our sleeves. We didn't have to agree, but we trusted each other. He said, in other cities, I spent weeks helping them build relationships because they didn't know each other. And so they didn't have the relationships for a crisis. And I started to sense that we weren't building the relationships or the crisis, that these kind of conversations were not happening as much as they should. And because of that, when the crises have now happened, right, racial justice, COVID, what we've seen with the economy, right, when these things have happened, we don't have those same relationships. And so we feel the city trying to pull itself apart. And to me, trying to make sure that we not only make good decisions about where we spend our money, but we make good decisions about who's deciding who's spending our money, is what we need right now because otherwise the city might not be 
the Atlanta that we know. It might just be any other city. Nah, nah, I don't want, I want, we don't want, we don't want to need that. And one thing I want to say here, just even just listening to you, and I know we don't talk previously, but I just want to say appreciate, thank you for always um, being a part of our culture. Because everything I'm hearing you saying, even from, from way back then, you always been rooted into what was going on. And by Atlanta being a black city and by you coming to the city and then building all these all these centers, going to Ebenezer, being in, being involved into our community, I think it's real special now. Because I'm, I'm pretty sure that you know that Atlanta has never had a white president of Atlanta City Council. Well, I had, had 25 years ago. Well, 25, 25, well, 20, years. 25, 25 years. years. White, yeah, yeah, okay. White mayor's been 50-something years. It's been a long time. So with that being said, I know that being a black city, is going. they're going to look like, well, wow, well, how I know what he's right. doing, he for right. us. So listening to you say that, I think it would be soothing to, to to my supporters and listeners. Like, oh, no, he's been rocking with us. He's he been helping us and doing that. And for your reason for coming back, I think that everybody from Atlanta shares that feeling. Like, this is not the city that we know of. Like, yeah, we popping. Yeah, Atlanta probably is movies. We the most popular yep. music. I don't think it have been one city to run everything yet, besides Atlanta, because right. it's, it's, it was either music in New York, movies in LA, right? Um, um, mu- um music in LA, movies in New York. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, Midwest had their time. Florida had their time. But Atlanta, it's like if you want to be an artist, move to Atlanta. If you want to be an actor, move to Atlanta. If you want to be a filmmaker, move to Atlanta. If you want to be a producer, move to Atlanta. You see what I'm saying? If you want to be a party promoter, move to Atlanta. If you want to play sports, you need to move to Atlanta. And I think that people who here needs to feel that and understand that that it doesn't matter about the color. It doesn't matter about who it is. It don't matter about if they're really from here. Help comes in all forms. It comes from anybody, male, female, dog, cat. It doesn't matter. Care about the people who care about you. Care about the people who care about your people. Care about the people who want to stand up and, and spend their lifetime on giving back to a culture that really is not theirs. That's the biggest That's the biggest take on it for me. So I just want to say from my standpoint, too, just thank you for being, you know what I'm saying, indulging to this like that. And I think that this is going to help you as you as – you, Well, I I appreciate that. And, you know, I think I think that what we all want is we all want people to move to Atlanta and say, I want to be a part of Atlanta. Mm -hmm. I want to help that culture. And that culture is our black legacy. And notice I say our because to me, if you move here, no matter what you look like and you say, I want to be part of Atlanta, you should be buying into, you should be helping to build, right? I would drop a ball one time. You You should be helping to build that, right? Because that legacy is something that we all can pull from to work on social justice. We all can pull from to work on arts. We all can pull from in authentic ways to build a better a better place. I, I will. I will never forget. I, I, C. T. Vivian, who was this incredible leader of the civil rights movement, he was a freedom writer. He was at the March on Washington. He was on the bridge at Selma. He was. He was behind everybody. The first time I met him, and I was working on the Civil Rights Museum, he turned to me and he said, "I want you to. Tell, I want to tell you something. If anybody gives you any grief because you're white and young, you send them to me, because we weren't just working on liberation for ourselves. We were working on liberation for everybody." And to me, that's it. If we're working on liberation for everybody, 
then let's go. And Atlanta ought to be that as well. It ought to be the home of working for liberation for everybody. In the words, in the words of my bro, um, Stephen Jackson, State Five, love for all because I love for all. That's it. No, definitely. Another thing I want to point out to everybody who watch it too is, um, now I'm going to ask you this question after this. Mm. Atlanta City Council is the people who put the laws in for the police, for, like you say, um, um, the people who patrol your neighborhood. The DA can convict, the lawyer, the, the mayor can dictate, but the city council is one who put the rules in place right. for these things to happen. So with that being said, with everything going along, how do you feel about police reform? So look, what we have seen with police and the way that police have engaged with citizens is wrong, right? We have seen that, it's not, that it, it is not what we want in those moments. But also, I mean, the phrase that a lot of people use I agree with, we're both over-police and under-police, right? We're over-police in the sense that a lot of neighborhoods have a lot of very small things that just people get harassed about. And we're under-policed in that big things happen and, and there's not safety, right? So to me, one of the most important things we can do is we can have specialists who are domestic violence trained, mental health trained, substance abuse trained. Because you don't send a knee surgeon in for a brain surgery. You don't send an ankle surgeon in when you're having a heart attack. If you're having a different kind of problem, you want a different kind of specialist responding to that, right? And, and right now, we basically have one kind of officer, one kind of training, in large part, going after all the different, you know, crises that are happening. So to me, the, the fundamental part of reform is to make sure that we have the right kind of specialties and the right kind of training, not only training, but the right kind of mindset to solve the problem that people are getting, you know, that people are getting responded to. The other thing that we need is we need to make sure is an interesting national study that said that the higher education that your police officers have, the less citizen violence they commit, not because they're smarter, but because they have more empathy. Because mm. the more exp life experience you have, formal or informal, these say, well, I can look at it from this way, I can look at it yeah, from that yeah. way, I can understand your perspective, right? So we need to make sure that we are helping our officers to get a lot of education so that they actually develop a lot of empathy. You, did you know that our fire department actually... The, the chief, everybody who reports to the chief and everybody who reports to them, top three levels all have a master's degree. All of them have wow. a master's degree. If you're on the fire department, you can get more education every year and the fire foundation helps you, fire and rescue foundation helps you get it. We should be doing the same thing with police so that uh, the police can say, well, I can see this from a lot of different angles. You know what? I'm going to I'm going to, I'm going to come at it from this way. Instead of just saying, you know what? I'm in this situation and I only have one way to try to solve it. So to me, police reform means that we have, almost kind of different skill sets within our police that basically can handle different kinds of situations. That's a great question. Let me ask you this. When you, when you talk about the specialists, are you talking about in-house or third party? I think it can be both. I mean, we've seen, we've seen, uh, we've seen third party have great success with our homeless population, building relationships, building trust, and then helping folks who want to come off the street, have a path way off the street. Those are outside of the police force. Then you see some departments, and I think there are some specialties where you probably do want them inside the police force. I mean, if somebody is having a mental health situation, they can be a danger to others, right? And so you probably want somebody who is a police officer but who's specially trained so that they try to every other kind of intervention that they can before they try a violent one. And so I think it depends on the it depends on exactly the kind of situation of what the skill is. Well, you know you know how to answer them questions. 
<laughs> I ain't lying, but they on point because the reason I'm asking you this is because we gonna I'll say we because we gonna we wanna know. Yeah, of course. We wanna know what's your plan. We wanna know how you're gonna act if they doing this. Because like you said, if some you get somebody who has syndrome yep. in the black community, but they're not they're conscious. But then they suffer all the things that you suffer from from being from right. the projects. Then they also suffer the 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 picking on and the the difference that how different they are and people saying, "Oh, you wrong with this." All that plays a factor in it in, in that. So when a situation goes on and somebody comes, like you say, they need to have something with this person to figure out, understand why they acting exactly. like this and what they doing. And I think that's going to be the most important thing. It's about figuring out how the police deal with the people yeah. in the community. You know what I'm saying? And also with the community, taking care of the community. And what I mean when I say that is, is that like, if people commit crimes in the community, a lot of people should be like, ain't, ain't my call. Right. Ain't doing it to me. Right. Well, I ain't worried about it. When, when you continue to let people do that, then you get more policing. Now the police are way more aggressive. Now they, they doing extra stuff. So now you got a car, like he got a car, but you work a job, but y'all stay in the same place. So now you finna get treated right. like these people get treated. You see what I'm saying? So I think on our end, we need to do more of police in our own community. So the police don't have to police us. And it's and it's trust, right? Part of it's trust. I mean, part of it is that folks say, well, it's not my thing because I don't trust to make a call. I don't trust to, to outreach to anybody. And look, this is personal for me because my wife's an ER doc at Grady. My wife catches when things go bad. She's the one that has to try to put people back together. Or she's the one that has to walk into somebody's family and say, I'm sorry to tell you. I think from my aspect as being a leading community, we have to start having more classes to start teaching these young black kids how to deal with the police. Start having classes on what to do when you get pulled over, on how you need to act when people are being aggressive. And I think it happens on both sides because it's hard to always say you, 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 without never taking a mirror back and just say, what did I play a part in this? And I think when we talk about these situations, nobody never does this on either side. Mm. It's just always you, 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 them, 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 them. No, them, 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 them. Nobody never say, yeah, they did that, but what are we playing too? And I just want to be the level field of having a voice to express to people how we can better ourselves to, like I say, avoid some of these situations. Because if you know the things that they're trying to do and you know the things they're looking for, you know what not to do to prevent mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So if you know that if, if you come to the police walk to the car and you're looking nervous, they're going to get nervous. You see what I'm saying? But police have to understand, too, that look what's going on. It's, it's crazy because I, I, I'm not a doctor, but I confidently say this. From anywhere from 80 to 90 percent of black people born in poverty have anxiety and PTSD without even experiencing themselves. Because if I turn on the news or my phone and I see five people get shot by the police or I see 
police come and somebody take off running, the police shoot them in the back. As soon as you pull pull them over, yep. that's going to be that's a film that's in their head. Right? That's, that's what's in their head. So now playing. they like this, and the police comes, and now he like why are they shaking? Now he's shaking. This is the big problem with us, and I think that having them specialists is going to be the. I think that's the most amazing thing. I didn't even heard somebody explain even out through all this. Because I think that's the key. I, I well, think that's the key to all. And I go back to something else we said. If we got pools that are open, community centers that are open, you know, th- there used to be a shift on the police schedule where an officer would go to a community center and just shoot hoops or play pool or hang out. That was the shift. We need to be doing more of that, right? Because to your point, mm-hmm. we need to create ways in which the community sees the police not responding but in some other situation and telling stories and joking around and just exchanging, oh, you play space, I play space, let's play, right? That kind of situation, because to your point, then it creates a different kind of relationship in all directions, right? So I think it's, it's one about specialists who respond, but it's also about investing time so that actually you've got a different set of stories and experiences around how those two groups interact. I think that's I think that's amazing. I think that offsets. I think what you just said offsets the fact of police don't don't police the community in front no more. And I think what you're saying will help offset that because if you're not from this community, you don't know that his mama, his mama, his grandma, his granddad were crazy. They were scared so. So, yeah, he ain't crazy, but it's in him. So when I pull up on him, I know the tree. I'm like, hey, man, go on in the house, man. And that's what happens at a lot of um, suburb um, communities. And rural areas. And rural areas. You, I, we, I, yeah, I, I know you. I seen your dad. I went to school with your auntie and your grandma. So, you know, what you're drunk this time, hey, man, just listen, man. I'm going to follow you home. Hey, park your car right here. Call for a ride. We don't, we don't get that same thing over in, in our community. Yep. Yep. And I think what you're saying will greatly offset that balance for, for the community to get to know the people who police their community and the people who police community to get to know the people in the community. And, you know, the truth is in Atlanta right now, it doesn't happen in almost any part of the city. It doesn't happen in the richer parts of the city because police officers can't afford to live there. So they don't live in those communities because <laughs> they can't afford a house there. They don't live in poorer communities because we haven't encouraged them to. So actually nobody's got relationships right now across the whole city. It makes a huge, you're so right. I mean, I'd get into trouble as a kid, and I would know the deputy. He'd pull up and say, I'm going to call your dad if I see you out here again. That was it. Right? Because mm-hmm. I knew he knew my dad. It changes everything when you've got a personal relationship with somebody and they have knowledge, specific knowledge of that community. You're so right. No, that's, that's great. Um, is there anything you want to say before we get up here? Any points you want to touch on? Anything that you want to speak on that we haven't got a chance to speak on and touch on? You know, the only thing that I'd say is, you know, I think, I think one of the things we've got to change in Atlanta is that Atlanta has grown. It's gotten all kinds of, you know, international publicity. People know it. But when we came into COVID, we had 25% poverty in the city of Atlanta. We had 125,000 people living in the city who were in poverty. We cannot be satisfied with that. We can't, we have to stop saying if we're growing and if we're famous and if we're on the front page of, you know, cool uh, magazines, then Atlanta's making it. We have to basically say, if folks are left behind, we're not. All of us are not making it. And to me, that's, that, is, that is it. 20 years from now, we're either going to look back and we're just going to be a bigger version of what we got or we're going to be a better version of what we got. 
And to me, that's why I wanted to get into this to try to be a better version of what we're, what we're going to be. And I thank the work that you've been doing for this city. You've been here proving it. Um, I just want to say thank you for taking your time out. I appreciate the show. It's good. Um, take this information, y'all. Look it up. Go vote. Go vote, definitely. Um, like I say at the beginning of the show, local politics is the most important thing. When, when is the voting dates? So early voting starts October 12th. Election day is November 2nd. Mayor, every city council person, and school board will all be on the ballot. Get into it. Start figuring it out. Look at these ballots. Figure out who these people are. Register to vote right now. Encourage other people to register to vote. And, and educate yourself. So when your homeboy say, well, I ain't finna like go down there and vote. What the hell I'm voting for? You can be like, bro, bro, you need to do this, this, because it's going to do this. If we can get, get this person to office, he can help us do this. This is what it's for. Start having a dialogue. Start having a conversation. Start educating one another. Each one teach one. Till next time. It's your boy Pale. We in the apartment with Pale. Meet me in the apartment.